0: Welcome back to the podcast. You're listening to part two of my conversation with Benjamin Bratton, author of The Stack and Revenge of the Real. In your excellent lecture at Trust, there was an anecdote about microbes, that the existence of the microscope did not invent microbes, but now that we know that they're there, we can no longer look at surfaces in the same way. And I found myself thinking that there are some implications for democracy as we've thought of it thus far, when the existence of an entity that knows more about myself than I can immediately recall, that has my entire recorded history, that can synthesize my own opinions uh, more accurately than I can. There's a precedent for this, an essay by Rob Horning called Google Alert for the Soul, where he talks about an example that people think of themselves as a fan of Madonna, for example, and then they look at their playlist at the end of the year, and it turns out that they listen to Katy Perry 10 to 1 versus Madonna. And there's something about this data self mm-hmm. that makes makes our own, our own conception of self is then challenged because we are faced with yeah. the quantitative data that says differently. So yep. the Enlightenment notion of reason, deliberation, debate, voting, things like this, a lot of that, I think, is called into question once, um, just hypothetically, if we had uh, two AIs that battled out different political positions and were able to recall your entire tweet history, everything you've ever written, uh, synthesize your entire substack, all the media that you've consumed, do people then begin to doubt in their own capacity for reason and deliberation and decision-making in a, a sense of like representative democracy?
1: Really interesting set of questions. Let me go back to the beginning. The trust the trust talk, I think, was called Inhumanism Rising. The argue, the thing that I was talking about there was, and this talk was given in Berlin, so of, of course the audience wasn't necessarily receptive to this, this next idea, was that a lot of the, the anxiety about new technologies actually doesn't have to do exactly with what those technologies are capable of doing, though some of it is. A lot of it is about what those technologies reveal and disclose about how the world has always worked that is existentially Mm. uncomfortable and even subjectively insulting in in, in ways that are affectively and aesthetically insulting and that this anomie is part of the anxiety, an anxiety that then becomes politicized and aestheticized in other kinds of ways. The other point that I was sort of drawing from this is, and I mentioned this before earlier on the, our discussion about this idea of existential technologies, which really draws from Stanislaw Lem's *Summa Technologica, is one pe- work of his major work of nonfiction, and that is that Lem. There's a differentiation between what he calls instrumental technologies that are ones that the real effect on the world is in what they do. A bulldozer moves dirt, and there are other kinds of, of technologies that the real effect on the world is is that when used properly, they transform our understanding of how the world works in the first place like a microscope. That, that Yes, it allows you to see things very small, but then it fundamentally transforms our sense of scale, structures, and, and again, way we see surfaces. Telescopes being another example. Yes, you can see things far away, but they also fundamentally change cosmology. That's an existential technology. I think that AI almost certainly will prove to be an existential technology and that its real impact on human societies and on the ways in which planetary systems produce human societies will be at a more fundamental level existential than instrumental, but those two will be closely related to one another, hopefully. That is, hopefully, the existential implications of AI about how intelligence works, how it's distributed, how cognition functions, the relationships, you know our embeddedness in different kinds of systems that becomes disclosed to us in different kinds of ways, that those disclosures and revelations actually change the way we act upon the world because now we know we know things. In the same way in which the way in which computation revealed climate change to us and revealed that anthropogenic agency w- was doing this thing, now it changes our subjectivity in a different kind of way. Now that we know we're doing it, we know we have to do something differently. I think this is that's the coupling that you want in this kind of regard. Now, I think that relationship between it reveals something we were doing all along but didn't understand is also related to your your point about seeing ourselves from the outside in the data that we're that we're seeing here that we're seeing here as well. The term I have for the phenomenon that you're that you're describing is what I call the inverse uncanny valley. If the uncanny mm. valley is when you you see something that's not quite human, and you're creeped out by it is not what you ex- expected. The inverse uncanny valley is when you see yourself through the eyes of that machinic other, and you're creeped out by what you see. You're creeped out by yourself because you're not what you expect to be, right? It, you, you you see yourself and you're like, yeah. oh, that's yeah. is that me? And there's a kind of disjuncture between your sub- this subjective experience of self on the one hand and this, externalized portraiture of you that you're now experiencing in the third person, and yet somehow also in the first person as well. And it's that kind of split. I call this inverse uncanny valley. I think that as we begin to see ourselves more in relationship to the data that we produce, and there's a kind of increasing self-modeling process that occurs through that, that phenomenon begins to become much more complicated and much more nuanced, and there's lots of different ways in which people would, would do this. I think this, however, relates to the last thing we were talking about in relationship to to climate and the emergence of other kinds of of, of subjectivities and objectivities, that one of the, the philosophical implications of the Anthropocene is, and this goes back to the terraforming thesis, is that anthropogenic agency was terraforming the planet for centuries before it understood that it was doing that. Right. That the agency, agency preceded subjectivity by centuries. Right. And so we normally, you know, humanities will tell us that first you cultivate a subjectivity and then by calibrating your subjectivity, you will then have agency downstream accordingly. And yet here it works the other way around, that the agency preceded the subjectivity in, in, in relationship to this. And I think you're seeing a similar kind of dynamic in, in, in this phenomenon where you're seeing your, your effects in the world. The things that you're actually doing, the, the agency that you produce, and then you having to recalibrate your subjectivity in relationship to that. There was a project we did at Strelka a long time ago called Presense, which was a kind of exploration of this phenomenon. And what it what the, the little speculative scenario that it derived was one in which AI analyzes your whole calendar, right? Let's say it goes through your Google calendar back five or 10 years. And just like Spotify recommendations that may tell you that, you know, you, you this is the song that you're most likely to listen to next. It then populates your calendar with the things that you are most likely to do over the next week or two. Right? <laughs> and so it generates an itinerary for you based on what it is that you want to do and then you're you're kind of put in situations situation like All right, do i do the thing that it basically tells me I was going to do anyway or do i not do the thing that it was telling me to do and you're now you're now in a position where you have to negotiate that like if you hadn't used this thing you may have done exactly the thing that it predicted <laughs> you were going to do but now that it's telling you that that's what you're going to do maybe you decide not to do it anyway because you want to you you want to be free range right you want to you know demand your agency in relation to this and so the scenario that drew out we did a whole film about this and everything was that somebody ran this whole thing and then got very weirded out by it about about two weeks because it was it was just was it was just too accurate and yeah. they didn't like yeah. it anymore and they had a little bit of a of a of a crisis and decided okay i'm going to stop using this and instead of using this thing i'm going to go to the park i'm going to go feed the ducks i'm going to go to the zoo i'm going to call my mom i'm going to go huh. touch grass blah 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 and then they're just super curious, and like, I wonder what it said I was going to do instead. And they log on, and it says, "Feed the ducks, call your mom, touch grass." <laughs> this and so it had predicted that at this particular moment you were going to decide to do that. Oh my
0: god! I, 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 I think
1: I think this is the this is the kind of loop between agency and subjectivity that we increasingly will find ourselves in, and it's one that, for the most part. The way in which humanities talks about identity and agency is just not, not even remotely prepared to enter the conversation.
0: Yeah, well, maybe um, on the note of outdated humanities, one of the things that I really appreciate about your work is that you do have a keen sense of coining these new terms. I think particularly about boomer theory, which is something that I picked up from you, I think, in Revenge of the Real. The idea that any form of data sensing is surveillance, that this is an inherently negative thing, not the necessary stuff from which to compose society in a way that we would prefer. I wonder if maybe for our listeners who are not familiar with that term, if you could tell us what boomer theory is. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, sometimes you write things and you never, never live them down. So anyway, I, I'm happy. This is, this is one I'm, I'm, I'm happy to, to own. This is okay. Um, so l- let me start with the with the example that you gave about the data sensing, and then I'll go to the more, I think maybe more historical definition that I kind of meant by this. One was just this idea that I, I think, I think the conversation about data sensing and production and the social function of social models changed a lot pre pandemic to post pandemic. I think the idea that data is fundamentally personal, that the production of data for large-scale social models that would be used as mediums of governance to compose and coordinate a society, that may have seemed much more troublesome to people pre-pandemic than it did mid-pandemic and post-pandemic in a certain way. That there was, again, a sense of like, well, of course, societies have to, the ways in which viable societies compose themselves is they're able to sense what's going on, produce models about what's going on, and then recursively act back upon themselves in some kind of, in some sort of compositional effect. And I think we saw societies that don't do this, that were, were really bad at it, ended up turning their hockey arenas into morgues. And societies that had developed really smart ways of doing this, like uh, audrey tang's programs in in taiwan for example were were ones that did well I mean that is you can think about the pandemic in a lot of different ways and for sure there were a lot of really equally absurd uses of surveillance technologies that also demonstrated the wrong way to do this you know particularly the last couple of years in, in in China for example but and so i'm not it's it's not a, again it's not a sort of like a knob that you turn one way or the other but i, I all would just say is I think that the the discussion, which may have been a bit one note pre pandemic, that, you know, it's, it's Foucault, it's Panopticon, it's the New World Order is producing data about you. It's bad. You need to, to make yourself as opaque as possible, that freedom is opacity, that you get this kind of horseshoe between anarchism and libertarianism and a, a kind of a deep adherence to the idea that data is essentially personal. Uh, which is which is which is has, has limitations. Okay, so that was one angle of it. However, the related boomer theory, as I was kind of talking about, it had more to do with the idea or the implication of, of sort of trying to develop a politics around conceptualizing and composing more viable societies in which there is an extraordinary emphasis, an imbalance of emphasis on deterritorialization, deconstruction, evading control. Dismantling, resisting, refusing, as opposed to constructing, controlling, ordering, territorialization, composition—that pulling bricks apart is intrinsically better than putting one brick on top of another. A lot of this, you know, it, it, I'm being very reductive about this, but I—I I, I mean to sort of identify what is essentially a reductive tendency. I think, in a lot of ways, this comes from the impact, trying to analyze where does this come from? I think a lot of it, particularly in the global north and in the west, comes from the impact of May 68 intellectual culture, first on continental philosophy and then on American academia from that. yes. And so when I say boomer, I mean literally like this particular group of people who went to college in a particular period of time and then became assistant professors at a particular period of time. And a particular organization of a particular discourse through humanities departments and through art schools that started in Europe was established by the kind of, you know, around and before the May 68 moment and then was exported to North America in the seventies and eighties took on, it was more generalized beyond that, that 1968 French, German, European context that became a kind of hegemony within American art and, and humanities curriculum. And then is exported back to Europe from America. And so, you know, a lot of the ways in which, you know, you might encounter Foucault and Deleuze and like the ways in which people have managed to turn Heidegger into a hippie of, of all things <laughs> is an American, it, is an American export. It's an American export back to, back to this as well. And so the first thing indicates is like, look, if heterogeneity, heterogeneity and heterogenesis within systems means the production of difference. And the production of difference means the production of structure. Structure is differentiation, and differentiation is structure. And so, when when Craig Venter goes through the sea and he scoops up this ocean water and he's mapping the DNA and all of the, the things that he finds, and he, he discovers that he goes 150 miles one way, and 80 percent of the DNA he's finding is different than it was, you know, 50 miles the other direction. That incredible differentiation at the level of life. Is structure. It is structured differentiation, and so the impetus towards the kind of reflexive aesthetic impulse towards deterritorialization is actually entropic in, in its kind of outcome around around this as well. And so, a few things are sort of working from this is basically suggesting is that the hegemony of this approach within the humanities and the global North more generally, and it's pervasive, and it was one that was very difficult. Right? You can also look back at in the 19 in the late 1960s when adorno is confronting the new left students and basically telling them that they're idiots for for tearing everything apart habermas basically saying the same thing to daniel Combe-Bendit, calling him a kind of adventurous twat this it wasn't that this that, that i'm the first person to identify this in any kind of way what i'm just sort of pointing to is the fact that this this is now an american export this is part of the american intellectual hegemony is to export this out. it's also a ge- it's also a generational problem that you have I don't mean boomers in the expanded sense. I mean boomers in a literal sense produced a kind of theoretical structure and edifice that my generation, your generation, generation after you, generation in between us have all had to negotiate as the way of entering into the humanities in the same way in which that generation has has structured the landscape in relationship to its own experience, yeah, across the board, it's also done the same thing in philosophy. The other thing, I, I you know, and that's a problem. And like, I really like am just pointing the fact of like it's a big In fact, is yeah. like kids, you don't have to listen to these people anymore. But the other thing, I, you know, I've been thinking a little bit more about this. And as I wrote about this, I think there's a bigger problem in, in relationship to this, and that is, it's not just that you had one generation that went through college and instantiated a kind of intellectual hegemony that is probably. Not without merit, for sure. I mean, I grew up on Foucault and Deleuze and Derrida and all these sorts of things, and and, and have learned to think sure. through them. It's, I'm not arguing for a sort of devaluation of this, but rather recognizing, basically turning it, turning its techniques of analysis and critique back upon itself to understand its own historicity and its own li- and therefore its limitations. There's also a problem that philosophy is basically optimized for college students. The time in someone's life in which you're most likely to kind of ask big questions about who we are, where we come from, what does it all mean, and actually have the time and state support or generational support to sort of do this is, you know, between 18 and 30. This tends to be the sort of the period of time in which you kind of do this. It's also just from a developmental psychological time in which people are, in, are focused on, you know, this relationship with their parents and trying to establish independence from their parents is a big priority their negotiation with authority, their, their constructing and wrestling with their own identity. These are the preoccupations of, of people that age within our society. And unfortunately, I think there's been a kind of over the long period, like since the post-war era, when we started sending a lot of people to college, there's been a kind of audience capture. That is, philosoph- it's not that philosophy has mm-hmm. been produced by people of that age, but rather, it's largely consumed by people of that age. And therefore, the philosophy it's kind of a darwinian process the philosophy that gets consumed and gets published and republished over and over is the philosophy that is well suited to accommodating people who are going through that particular that particular time in their life right and so it's not surprising to me that judith butler sells a lot more books than some weird analytical analytical philosophy of language person who's dealing with stuff that's like considerably more es- esoteric and so in any event, the boomer theory problem, as I see it, is a symptom of a more specific problem within a larger, a larger problem of the way in which our institutional systems are essentially producing path dependencies for the productions of certain kinds of theory and certain kinds of philosophy at the expense of others.
0: We're seeing that play out in real time now, where especially in New York and young creative adjacent spheres, there's new canons being created. People are rejecting the things that they were taught in school. There's all formations of different counter-elites. And I think we're finding that people are rejecting the theory that they were taught in our crumbling institutions in many cases. They're realizing that it was maybe not necessarily applicable to their life, the circumstances that they find themselves in now. And some people in the worst case, they're realizing that they never believed it. They just had to absorb it and learn how to mimic that language to have upward mobility within the old structures and institutions. So yep. it's a it's a very interesting period to see all these things under tremendous stress now.
1: I hundred percent agree. It's really interesting, and I think you're. I think it's an interesting transition time, and I think beginning to see some of those shifts. And I, I think some of those shifts are quite productive, and I hope they. I hope that they are able to be institutionalized. Like that might be the wrong, not what they want to hear, but I Hopefully. think that's actually where the research sort of to go in this regard. But I mean, the best example I can sort of point at of the kind of the pathologies of Boomer's theory is, is is art speak, is international art English, where the Absolutely. kind of where the kind of grotesquely bizarre self contortions of post structuralist prose which is basically like English translations of French and German that are just weird. And then people, <laughs> people, lear, people learn to write English to mimic these weird English yeah, translations yeah. <laughs> of the French and German to produce this, this, this kind of… This kind of
0: it's grammatically incorrect in every right. language. <laughs> to, to, <laughs> it's infuriating. To produce this,
1: this kind of erudite glossolalia of speaking in tongues as a way of legitimizing their, their gestures you know, if I was an artist, I would find this just really demoralizing.
0: It's, uh, yeah, it's infuriating. Um, just, I mean, well, you know what, that is the good thing about podcasts and quantitative analytics. I will say in the short term that if you talk like that and people can't understand what you're saying, they just don't listen. So a little bit of competition, not to be the free market guy, but a little bit of competition goes a long way, breaking up those old institutions, those old structures. I wanted to ask you, uh, and I guess I should have asked this before we started recording. Is there going to be a second year of Antikythera?
1: Yes. So, I mean, there'll be several years. Will there
0: be a new cohort? There
1: will. There'll be several years of Antikythera coming up. It's a long-term project, fortunately. Okay, okay. Just to catch up some of your listeners who may not may not have watched the, f- the first episode. I always,
0: I always recommend uh-huh. people who listen to the podcast, if they participate in the Discord, they publish to Do Not Research. I encourage them, skip American MFA programs, go study with Benjamin Bratton. I <laughs> told them to apply to Strelka before, I tell them to apply to Antikythera <laughs> now. Um, it's a much better use of your time and you'll make better work.
1: I, pre- I appreciate that. I mean, someone who I also teach in, I'm, I also teach in an MFA program here uh, as well at UC San Diego. So I, I'm I maybe, I'm, I get playing both sides <laughs> sometimes. Some <day. laughs> I, I, I don't know. But, for, but for, I mean, for any of your listeners who aren't familiar, like, I, I directed uh, for five, six years, I Directed a, a, a research program at the Shalk Institute in Russia that we closed as soon as the, as soon as the war started, and we started a very different kind of research program, which is primarily based in Los Angeles and London, called Antikythera, which is named after which is focusing on philosophy of computation more generally. It's named after the what's sometimes often to consider the first computer, which was discovered about a little over a hundred years ago off the island in Greece and. One of the things about the Antikythera mechanism that we thought was very provocative as a kind of primal scene of computation was that it wasn't just a calculation device, it was also a a navigation device. It was sort of used to model and map and to simulate past, present, future of the positions of the stars and the planets. Hmm. And, And so the first computational technology was used to orient experience in relationship to its planetary condition. Not just focusing on calculation or algorithm, algorithms or data or something like this, but this orientation. Computation is about the orientation of intelligence in relationship to this planetary condition. That's the primal scene aspect that we want to kind of pick up on. So we did a, we did a five-month studio this February through June, developed a number of really great projects. We'll be promoting some of those and developing them a little bit, a little bit later in the fall and explained they were you know, had to do with ai with simulations with economics with with impact of ai in science regional planning uh, human ai interaction design a whole number of, of different areas that we that we developed we had 12 people in the cohort they were quite interdisciplinary Here, here's the thing whereas strelka was on an annual cycle antikythera is going to be on a two year cycle and so we're, one year we're going to do this 5 month deep dive studio where we are generating huge amounts of ideas. One of the things that always was exhausting about the shoka process, seemed like we, we, we produce all this stuff. And then as soon as we, we had it, and you took a breath, it was time to start the next program. You never really got a chance to kind of develop and disseminate and explore the things that you had made. And so this second year, we're really focusing on that. It's a kind of development year. We are, however, doing at least two, two things that your listeners could apply to. We're doing a, a shorter one month studio just on AI, and that's going to be in London in June, and we're doing that in conjunction with Cambridge, Cambridge AI Futures Group, and with a bunch of people at at DeepMind and Google Research, and so it's a kind and a few other a few other organizations, but it's a kind of triangulation of Antikythera, DeepMind, and and Cambridge. And we're going to basically be taking a lot of the ideas that came out of that first year of the studio and using them as the briefs and the inputs into the second year. And so that application will be open later this fall. And obviously, we'd love to have some of your listeners apply. Another one is that we're doing is is a working group on the hemispherical stacks theme, which is the one that's really focusing on computation Mm -hmm. geopolitics. So US-China chip wars and all of that kind of, and, and the data sovereignty issues. And the ways in which geopolitics is becoming increasingly fought over computation, the ways in which computation is increasingly has geopolitical implications, there'll be a working group that's constructed around that. There will be a few other opportunities, but those are two of the ones that will be most uh, salient for next year. And then, in 2020, and then the idea is that in 2025, we'll do the big five-month studio again. There's a bunch of other announcements that we'll be doing this fall about other things we have planned. We're going back to Asia. We did a big workshop in Beijing last year. We're going back to Asia, a few more cities. We're doing an event at MIT next fall. We're doing an event on uh, simulations, recursive simulations at USC in early 2024 in Los Angeles. And so there'll be a, a number of opportunities for me to, you know, for us to connect with some of your listeners.
0: Fantastic! Yeah, I mean, I just I have to say that I've just been in such admiration of your work, and it's been so formative for how I think about so many issues at this point, going on almost uh, ten years. I think I read your piece in *Eflux* in twenty fourteen, and I've been following your work very closely ever since then. So it's a uh, it's wonderful to finally have you on the podcast. No, it's mutual. I, I, I appreciate it too. I, I have to tell you, I um. So my son is a sophomore in high school now, and he's
1: kind of a his, he's kind of a history and politics buff. And I was kind of waiting for the moment, like when is he gonna, old enough that I can show him the Cinderella Politogram <laughs> stuff without uh, with, 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 without totally without totally fucking him up.
0: He's like, and, yeah, uh, that's my account right there.
1: <laughs> no, no, he, he he was actually pretty critical of the whole thing. It was a little bit like, oh, these people are people are crazy. So there may be there may be so like a generation gap between like the different waves of fourteen year olds uh, as they as, <laughs> as they as they come through and the whole thing as well. But but. Um, just that aspect of the some things you were looking at was like was also I just think so, so so interesting, and the way that you pulled out of this, the way you the things that you pulled out from this um, from that that subculture as a way of thinking about not only, I mean the thing that I took from it was not only that there's this incredibly wide space of ideological constructions where you've got like. Whatever anarcho posadists thinking about dolphin <laughs> UFOs on one side, yeah, and literally,
0: then, literally, right, yes. and, then, <laughs> and then you've
1: got like the I don't know, like the Austrian monarchist furries over here, and like everything—these yeah. strange yeah. combinations of things. But on the other hand, what also is really struck is that how constrained it is too. Like everything mm-hmm. is within this two by two matrix, and so you've got yeah. like authority, liberty, left, right, like that. This that that's it. Like, you can do anything you want as long as you're using this fundamentally reductive algorithm by which to think through anything. And th- that was the play that I thought was, I mean, this is the interplay that I've, I've always thought was, um, was was so interesting in, in some of this stuff.
0: Well, Daniel Keller called it, uh, I think he used the analogy of uh, politogram and young political spaces online more broadly as being a GAN, a General adversarial network where yeah, yeah, all of these kids are producing different ideas that are then in conflict with each other, but they're trying to produce a new type of political economic theory to scale to the problems of the 21st century. And so, like an AI, they're kind of scraping all of political history, reducing yep. it down to exactly, these like meme things that approximate something that looks like politics but is not exactly. And uh, yeah, the artifacts in that weird translation space are, are really, really meaningful. So,
1: I, I like that. I like that. It, it is a kind of GAN phenomenon around this as well yeah but and it, it's one that splits even further around this as well like I, i'm just one other point on this i remember we were we looked at some of these we looked at some of the chart the the politogram stuff like early on at stroka we actually kind of looked at the same we could sort of do something with it one of the ideas that someone came up with was that it seems that every year there are more more accelerationisms. Right there was like eight, oh, yeah. and, like, and then then there was like five, and then there was ten, and then there's five hundred, and like, there's an exponential growth in the number of accelerationisms, and now you get Mark Andreessen's an accelerationist, and like and, of course, and all this, and all this of kind of thing, and so <laughs> you know if, if you model this out, the exponential growth in the number of accelerationisms, and you you presume a relative population stability of eight billion. At what point does the ratio become one to one, where you get one, <laughs> where where every every everybody gets their
0: acceler- one? I'm a Josh gets, <laughs>
1: yeah, every, everybody gets their own accelerationism, and we call this Cinderella's law. <laughs> 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 that that pheno- the phenomenon of the art sort of the one.
0: true. I have it on good authority. That is that's very that is very funny actually. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you know uh, uh, that's all of social media. Political parties of one. That's the whole world. Yeah. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully not. Benjamin, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. This has just been such an incredible conversation and um I can't thank you enough for your work. Um I'd love to promote some of the stuff as it comes out. We'll definitely be watching it on the stream. Very much looking forward to all the stuff that Antikythera publishes in the next few months. Yeah, anything uh, that we should plug as we sign off?
1: No, I mean, I'll give you the, I'll give you the, the, the URL, antikythera.org, A N T I K Y T H E R A.org, where there'll be a refresh of the site with a lot of the other projects on there later this fall. Great. There'll be a few things you can apply to there as well. I've got like three book projects coming out. There's, there's one, there's a book of editing with Bogna Konyer and Anna Greenspan on the history of AI in China, which will be called Machine Decision Is Not Final. And that's going to be published by Urbanomic and MIT Press. There is the sort of the refresh of the terraforming, which is actually not just going to be the little thirty thousand word thing. It's going to be more like a you know full hundred thousand word book. There's a bigger book project around the Antikythera themes, which a lot of it has to do with this question of artificialization and what constitutes intelligence within AI. And this this one is sort of looking at like what constitutes artificialization. And how do, and how does AI reconfigure the way we even think about that? Think about that idea. There's a fourth book that we're currently doing now on that's gathering some of the hemispherical stacks work, the the issues around the the U.S., China, and the, the heterogeneous splits within planetary computation. That I'm co-editing with Chen Chifan, Stanley Chen, the Chinese science fiction author, and that'll be a mix of fiction and nonfiction kind of mixed together scenarios of near future computational geopolitics. It'll be a lot of Chinese writers, a lot of Western writers all mixed together. We did a workshop in Beijing around this as well. So those are the four book projects, but the machine decision is not final. The China AI book is is will, will be the first one out.
0: Well, yeah, many spinning plates. Uh, that's always the case nowadays. Benjamin, thank you so much thank for you. coming on the podcast. My pleasure. More again soon. Thanks for listening. This is an independent show. If you like this content, you can help to show your support by subscribing and leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. You can support the show on Patreon, Substack, or channel. Find me on socials at Joshua Citarella on Instagram or Twitter. This is a listener-supported show. I don't do any advertising, so your support is really what keeps this project going. Thanks for listening. See you again soon.